You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our scripture reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. I pray now that you would be mine and our true wisdom, mine and our true word, that we might know you through your word and through Christ our Lord. In his name, amen. You may be seated. How are we doing? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Matt. I'm doing great, too. It's week three in here, starting to feel a little bit more regular and comfortable on here. We only have two weeks left here in this letter of First Timothy, and then we will get to Easter where we will do a kind of a one-off short sermon because we've got a lot to do that day. Five baptisms, Lord willing, and some introduction of some new members. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. And then after Easter, the week after Easter, we will begin our long foray into the book of Exodus, which I am really excited about. So if you want to go ahead and like find, dust off your old VHS tape of the Ten Commandments and get those Exodus juices pumping, in the next three weeks or so, you've got some time. Does anyone actually have a VHS player in their home? Yeah. All right. Uh, what about what about like those race car rewinders? Like, why do we have rewinders? I have no idea. Anyway. All right. Yeah. Well, obviously, to re- rewind them. Uh, uh, be kind and rewind, everyone. Well, I've recently been reading more and more stories in the news lately about diseases, about sicknesses that we thought had long been eradicated, measles, mumps, and the like that are rearing their ugly heads again, Uh, because not to like bring in controversy into the room of of a topic that many people feel very strongly about on both sides, but because huge numbers of people are no longer vaccinating their children. Uh, The point of bringing that up is that all it takes uh, for diseases to infect and sicken a community is for a community to be unprepared for that sickness, that disease, and then for a patient zero, for someone who carries the sickness to enter into that community. As Paul begins to wrap up this first letter to his young pastoral protege, Timothy, Paul is going to urge Timothy to keep confronting, to keep redirecting, to keep seeking to heal 
two very deadly forms of sickness and disease that the Ephesian church seems particularly vulnerable to. These two forms of unhealthiness, of disease, will be our two halves of our sermon tonight, two sicknesses that we, just as equally, can be vulnerable to in our own lives and in our own communities. We need this text tonight. We need this text that you heard Dan read for us in 1 Timothy 6 to confront unhealthy doctrine in our lives and a a second sickness, unhealthy desires. Unhealthy doctrine and unhealthy desires. So right on the heels of last week's text that Kyle Stevens so excellently, excellently preached for us, like seriously, you guys should just like fire me and let him do the preaching. Because Yeah, all right, amen. Uh, it was great, yeah. Wait, are you just like really excited that Kyle was really great or like affirming that I should be fired? All right, okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, on the heels of that text that we heard Kyle preach for us from 1 Timothy 5 and into the first couple verses of chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy to teach and urge these things in the second half of verse 2. We've seen him say several things similar to this, kind of like keep teaching these things, these things, these things a couple times. And so here when he says teach and urge these things, he could be telling Timothy to teach and urge these things amongst the Ephesian church that I just finished talking to you about, about elders, about your pastors, Or he's beginning to wrap up this entire thing, and he could be meaning teach and urge everything, all of these things that I have thus far written to you. I tend toward thinking that. He's now kind of wrapping this thing up. Teach, keep teaching and urging everything that I've written in the first five chapters, because now he's going to return to a theme that he's hit on several times, false teaching and bad doctrine. He says in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The presence of these false teachers in Ephesus are the entire reason for all of this, everything surrounding this letter. These false teachers are the reason that Paul sent Timothy to stay in Ephesus in the first place to confront them. These false teachers are the reason that Paul has sent this letter to Timothy uh, to give him specific instructions on the things that he is to confront, as well as to then give a better and different vision for how the family of God is to live in the world and with one another. And so Paul brings up the problem of someone who is teaching something contrary to the doctrine delivered by Paul and the apostles. And this is actually an issue in a conversation that I have been having with several of you uh, for the, over the past many weeks, months, and even years through, with a couple of you. It seems that in these first couple of centuries, there were lots of different understandings of Jesus about the nature of the church, about the nature of the Bible and God's word. And so why in the world should we today in 2019 in Albuquerque, and why in the world should these people in the Ephesian church just accept Paul's word as authoritative, as over and against many of the uh, teachings that are going on? Who is to say that the false teachers that Paul is confronting are actually the right ones, and that Paul is perhaps the false teacher? Well, while it's true that the Bible makes almost circular claims that it's authoritative, that the Bible is authoritative because it says it's authoritative, the New Testament at least was written by one, people who claimed to be, uh, claimed to have seen the risen Lord with their own eyes and then were deputized by him to then deliver his word, to give instructions 
for the New Testament church. So they were either, these first eyewitnesses, they were apostles, like Paul, Peter, James, John, Matthew, or they were, secondly, the, the other letters that were not written by apostles, they were written by people who were very close to the apostles. And their letters and their accounts were immediately and widely accepted by early Christians in the broad Mediterranean world. So there was swirling and competing doctrine for sure going on in these first few decades and first few centuries. Uh, but the competing doctrine and accounts were either, one, widely and roundly rejected as different than the teaching of the apostles. This was different teaching than the ones who were actually with Jesus and were sent by Jesus to teach the church. Or this competing doctrine just started popping up and arising much, much later, the second or third century after Christ, certainly not from the time of Christ. So as interesting as the story of the Da Vinci Code may be, modern retellings of this Council of Nicaea or something, uh, that if you heard a modern retelling of that story, you'd just imagine it was a bunch of rich white American men who gathered in Nicaea to determine what it is that the church would believe and squash any other competitors. And that's just fanciful and bad history. The Council of Nicaea in 325 was just a stamp of approval of what the broad, at the time, worldwide church was believing to be true, right doctrine that Jesus himself had delivered and then given to the apostles. And yet, that council in 325 had to happen. It had to happen to clarify what was true and right over and against what was wrong and bad. False teaching has always existed, and until the Lord returns, it always will. My favorite children's Bible is the Big Picture Story Bible. There's lots of great ones out there, uh, but one of my favorites, many of you have it, many of you read it with your own kids if you've got kids, and I like the way that this thing is written and organized because it tells the story of a God who speaks, who reveals himself to humanity, and then humanity chooses, to not, chooses not to listen. It either does listen to the word of God and then decides it knows better than God and then just chooses not to listen, or it just puts its fingers in its ears and pretends it has not heard. It's the story as old as the garden and the fall itself, when the serpent first puts the seeds of doubt in the first humans by asking, did God really say? And this is a question that all humans are asked of in temptation and even ask of themselves all day long for all of our lives. Did God really say? Adam, in Genesis 3, should have jumped in and said, yes, he did. He did, and he did so very clearly. But he didn't. Adam didn't say this. So God's word for our life is the slow drip of ongoing penicillin against spiritual infection in our lives, both individually and in our churches. And so Paul here says that different doctrine is different or bad if it does two things. If it doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 3, and if the teaching doesn't agree with teaching that accords with godliness. If it doesn't agree with the words of Jesus, and if it doesn't agree with lives of godliness. So first, if it doesn't agree with, literally, the healthy words of Jesus Christ. 
The sound words, the sound, this word sound, if it doesn't agree with the sound words, is literally if it doesn't agree with the, the life, the, the healthy, life-giving words of Christ, not the diseased, sick ones that you are hearing from the false teachers. So what Paul is saying is, is does the teaching agree with, likely, uh, the words of Christ? And since the gospel accounts weren't written down yet, Paul is likely referring to the oral traditions that these early Christian communities were memorizing and passing down to one another. Things like the Sermon on the Mount. These things are written in a very structured and organized way to be memorized before they were even written down. So you want to know if a teaching is good and right and true? It lines up with what we know that Jesus taught. And we know, even though the gospel accounts probably weren't even written down yet by the time Paul is writing many of these letters, he's interjecting so many of the words and phrases and teachings from Jesus that we do see in the gospel accounts. So even the words of Christ were forming and shaping what he's writing. This is not just a sentence or two of Jesus that we take from the gospels, um, taking it out of context, but does the teaching that we hear align with all of what Jesus taught, not a sentence or two, but all of what he revealed to be true of God and the world and humanity and sin and the nature of repentance, all of these things. And included within the teachings of Jesus are his unashamed and emphatic affirmation that the Old Testament is even the word of God and it is good. Many teachers out there today use Jesus as kind of like a coffee filter. They put Jesus up, they, they say, we, we, we read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. That sounds good, right? I, I, I think I do that also. Reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus. But then they can pass through Old Testament stories or pass through many parts of Paul or other parts that maybe don't sit as comfortably with us as 21st century Americans. And then the coffee filter of Jesus lets the bad stuff get through. And then whatever is helpful and useful and probably affirming of my already preconceived understandings of the world, I'll keep that as useful. But then what do you do with the bad coffee grounds? You throw it in the trash. And that's what many teachers uh, of the Bible do today. Just toss out much of the Old Testament or all of the Old Testament, much or all of the rest of the New Testament, the stuff that's hard to understand, the stuff that is difficult and challenging to our modern ears just gets tossed out. Well, we'll have many, many more weeks and months ahead of us in Exodus to think through this nuance, but Jesus comes to fulfill the law. He comes to fulfill the Old Testament. He does not come to throw out the law and the Old Testament altogether because it was primitive, it was bad, or it was somehow lacking. So, is a teaching or a teacher in accordance with the comprehensive teaching of Jesus? This requires us to not only know the Bible, but to understand it to understand the context of how the whole Bible fits together. And I'll be the first one to say that's hard work. Understanding how the Bible fits together, understanding the deep uh, doctrines and theology of God, this is hard work. Luckily, he's given us a lifetime. (laughs) He's given us churches. He's given us, as 21st century Americans, he's given us Bibles to read on our own. He's given us uh, a, a mobile bookshelf out here to grab a book to find a topic on something that I don't understand. He's given us many things to help us understand individually and corporately as churches to understand the Bible. Because 
as the old saying goes, every heretic has a Bible verse. Every false teacher, generally, if he's claiming to be a Bible teacher, will use the Bible to support his teaching. Every teaching can come from a good place, the Bible. Penicillin can be used for good, but used wrongly, and it can kill you. And so, it is important for us to do the very, very hard work of understanding the thing which we're reading, to understanding God's Word as it's given. And again, to some of us, that might sound like, well, if everyone is using the Bible, how is it that we can claim to know what is true and right? A few helpful guardrails to keep us on the road of right and good doctrine might be, what do other parts of the Bible say about this text or about this issue that I'm wrestling with? I've just flipped over to 1 Thessalonians 4 or something, and here's a difficult passage about sexual morality or the return of Christ or something. Uh, what do other parts of the Bible say and speak to about 1 Thessalonians 4? Another question might be for us is, how have the majority of Christians understood or taught this issue or text throughout history? Another guardrail might be, how do the majority of Christians in the world presently understand and interpret this text or this issue? So yes, while some southern white Americans used the Bible to justify slavery, undoubtedly that's true in history, they picked a couple of random verses out of context, but if they, were, if they had taken their fingers out of their ears and been a bit more self-reflective, they would have seen that the history of interpretation throughout the history of Christianity is against them. And if they would have had the ability to ask the rest of the Christians in the world at, alive at the time, they would have understood that the history or the present, the present Christian church is against their understanding of the Bible that they're using in, in, in slavery for the time. Incidentally, some folks are today using the Bible to justify and affirm all sorts of sexual relationships as God-honoring and good in the same way. They have picked a couple of words or verses out of context, even though they have the overwhelming history of interpretation for the last 2,000 years against them, and they have the overwhelming uh, Christian church worldwide against them. And this feeds us right into the second way that you know if a teaching is different or bad. It is teaching that does not accord with godliness. It is this is how we know that a teaching is actually good. It accords with a life of godliness. It is a teaching that is producing within its hearers over the long haul over their lives, uh, lives that are marked by godliness, marked by passion for God, joyful obedience to him, and marked by uh, compassion for others, joyful care and love for the world around them. If either of these is missing, then the doctrine has gone bad. If an individual or a community supposedly has super-duper love for God, but they are cranky and they are judgmental and they are dismissive and generally just an unpleasant lot of people to be around, things have gone bad. The doctrine has gone bad. They do not love people. If an individual or a community supposedly has super-duper love for people, but they pick and choose the parts of the Bible of what it means to love and follow God, then the doctrine has gone bad. Right doctrine is about making much of the person and work of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Sound doctrine, as one writer says, focuses on Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises through his atoning death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It lifts up Jesus as the perfect 
second Adam. It lifts up Jesus as the better son of Abraham without equal. It lifts him up as the true Israel. It lifts him up as the ultimate son of David. It lifts him up as the Lamb of God. It lifts Jesus up as the Redeemer and Savior. It lifts him up as the true temple. It lifts up Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It glories in him as our only hope in life and in death. Sound doctrine is all about the full, mind-consuming reality of Jesus. Sound doctrine is Jesus' doctrine. He fills up our vision as we prayed he would when we sang, Be thou my vision, the thing that I see. Fill up my desires and my hope so that nothing else is to me except for what you are. This is what we sing. There's a lot of these and nows, but be thou all else to me, save that thou art. Be everything to me except for what you are. Paul says that a person who believes a different doctrine than that of Jesus and then as given to and through the apostles, this person is puffed up with conceit. This person actually understands nothing. In his conceit, this person thinks that he has learned or he has unlocked some new way of understanding the world or understanding the Bible. But in his conceit, while he thinks he knows something, Paul says he actually knows nothing. He is so blinded by his knowledge that he is unable to see through that knowledge into what is actually true. His knowledge of the world has eclipsed his knowledge and vision of Jesus. So while it can often be dangerous to ascribe subconscious motives for why a person does or believes the things that they do or believe. Here Paul will show us, at least for these false teachers, where their unhealthy, where their sick desires, their bad doctrine come from. Their bad doctrine comes from the second half of verse 4. comes from an unhealthy, literally sick, craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Bad doctrine, which comes from prideful, actual, know-nothing conceit, has a deeper origin story, at least for these false teachers, a deep contrarian spirit that just loves controversy. Some of us are more contrarian than others who like something before it's cool and then when it finally hits the radio, now it's not cool, right? Who just because a large people, a large group of people like something or believe something, then we become naturally skeptical or distrustful of it. Uh, this can be true of me. It's, it's one thing to be contrarian. It's another thing to be contrarian just to like throw the grenade of controversy into the room and then just watch the world burn. <laughs> and that's the way of the world today. Like we, there are those more and more increasingly so who love to watch the world burn and we grab the popcorn. We're there to watch it also. The worst example may be like internet trolls who just comment on YouTube videos or on Facebook posts just to make people angry. I read, a, I read a story recently of a woman who found her husband's internet history, and it wasn't pornography that she found, but she found that her kind, mild-mannered husband would just get online every night and turn into a monster. It would, like, get onto YouTube and say the most vile, hateful, 
terrible things to unsuspecting folks online. And she was just, she had to leave him. <laughs> uh, she had to separate from this man. She wasn't a Christian. Uh, this man wasn't a Christian. And she was like, I thought I knew you and I don't. You are a monster. But while I don't post anything online that is that trolly, I, I, I hope you never find out in my life that I lock myself into an office and just find a YouTube, like kids YouTube or something. And there's like, <laughs> I don't know. Tro- you know the trolls. Uh, I can still desire to watch the controversy. Like, don't you? I used to follow folks on Twitter. I used to follow several blogs, several websites of people who would just say theologically or politically controversial things. I I would follow these folks just to watch the reaction, the reaction of people that I knew that I disagreed with and the reaction of people that I agreed with and just to watch them fight. Isn't this exactly, though, how Fox News and MSNBC bring in their crazy profits? both with their nightly talk shows, right? We can want to turn those things in or turn those things on just to watch people yell at each other and it's kind of fun. Or also with their websites and many other websites like it. How many times have you seen a clickbait link that says something like, Millennial Snowflake gets triggered. Click here. It's going to be awesome. Uh, And then you click there just to watch people yell at each other. Or you see something like, MAGA Trump supporter loses his mind and gets annihilated or something like that and we just click on it and watch people scream watch the world burn there is huge money in creating and passing along this content content and we eat it up but this craving for controversy this craving for quarrels and envy for dissension for slander for evil suspicions for constant friction or to paraphrase one pastor these are all ways that we communicate that the Lord cannot be trusted with the situation. These are all ways of the world who have no hope in a good king. There are certainly situations that require us as Christians to speak, to confront evil, to certainly confront false doctrine. But the question for us ought to be, do we actually trust God with the state of American politics? Or does our anxiety and does our online behavior, our water cooler discussions, does it indicate that we actually don't? Like, you thought that the 2016 presidential election was bad? Get ready. Like, get ready. It is about to be anarchy. Maybe not buildings burning down, but just Facebook is going to become an anarchy wild west. Over the next year and a half, will our online behavior, will our water cooler discussions, will even the kinds of blogs that we click on or the TV channels or shows that we tune into, will all of this indicate that we have different and better hopes for our country than the world, than the unbelieving world around us that just loves the controversy? Even in theological conversation or debate, does our tone, does our choice of words, do our words indicate that we actually trust God and that he will be faithful to build his church? Even if building his church looks differently than we thought it might, and maybe even on different continents than we expected him to. So once again, Paul is grabbing Timothy by the shoulders. He's spinning him around. He is shoving him out the door. 
get out there. Teach, urge these things with conviction, but with love. Do it differently than these false teachers out there. Do it differently than the world does. Timothy, get out there and post on Facebook or write a blog if you have to, but don't do it like the world does. Get out there with a life that indicates that the Spirit lives inside you that is totally different than the unhealthy false teachers who are dying from their own sick and diseased bad doctrine. Because it's not just these false teachers who are out there who are sick and diseased. They are infecting the rest of the community. They are causing division. They are leading people away. But it's not just theological doctrine. It's not just craving for controversy that Paul is only concerned with. Secondly, he, now st- need, he needs now to confront not just their unhealthy doctrine, but their unhealthy desires, their sick and diseased desires. Now, because money and riches are going to come up again next week, the end of chapter 6, I gave myself a little bit more time on the first half of this sermon. We'll prime the pump on this topic here for a few minutes tonight and then swing back around next week and pick up the pieces that we missed. But Paul is going to address unhealthy desires for stuff. Paul says that these false teachers are using their godliness, and I think their godliness, in quotes, as a means of gain. Remember, from chapter 4, these false teachers are adding all kinds of extra requirements for Christian living. There are things to be done, there are things to be abstained from, they are creating a new law to earn God's favor or to perhaps make themselves feel superior to the rest of the Christian community who is less serious than they are. But the gospel of Christ says that while you were dead in your sin, you had no ability nor no desire to love God or obey him. Nevertheless, Jesus came and lived perfectly for you, a life of joyful obedience. And the punishment for your lifetime of rebellion against God, Jesus took that punishment on the cross in his death. And in his resurrection life, by faith, you too can have the same resurrection life of a life that is alive in the spirit and that will live for eternity this work was accomplished for you two thousand years ago and when jesus said it is finished he meant it there is nothing to add to what he has accomplished on your behalf all someone must do is just grasp hold on that work by faith So to add requirement to it is to say that that was not enough. And if that, Jesus' work on the cross and his life and his death and his resurrection was not enough, then what in the world did he die for? So these false teachers are strolling into town and they are acting and teaching godliness. They are acting and teaching a form of uh, obedience, but it's really just law-keeping that diminishes the work of Christ, and they are doing so to make money. Godliness as a form of gain. Of course, there are plenty of teachers and pastors out there today who are doing the same thing for the same reasons. But this was especially a thing in Paul's day. Religion and philosophy teachers expected to be paid by their listeners, and listeners in these towns expected when a traveling philosophy or religion teacher came and spoke and taught on the town square to pay them. 
Even if a teacher didn't believe the things that he was saying, there was money to be made in just being a good speaker and good rhetoric. And this is why Paul was so careful to make sure that his audiences in cities around the Mediterranean did not think of him as one of these traveling philosophical or traveling religious hucksters who just set up a box, got up there, and said a few words about God to just let the money start rolling in. As Kyle mentioned last week, this is why he works side jobs to provide for himself, of making tents so that he might provide for himself, that he might differentiate himself from those in 2 Corinthians 2 that he says those who peddle God's word for profit. He would just walk around with one of these things and teach about God, teach about what he has done just to make a quick buck. Paul is not interested in that. Rhetoric and so-called godliness are not means of gain, while they may be means of financial gain. But that is not to say that Paul does not think that godliness is not altogether a way of gain. Rather, verse 6, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, not as a means for earning God's favor or growing in material wealth, but godliness in contentment with whatever material wealth that God has presently given you with is great gain. Godliness, not as a way to convince God to bless me more, or if I just obey him in this way, I will obligate him and kind of shake him down for a few more pennies or dollars. But because of God, who he is and the extravagant love that he has already given to us on the cross, well, there is nothing that is more beneficial in your life than godliness. Calvin says, godliness itself is a sufficiently great gain to us because through it, we become not only heirs of the world, but are enabled to enjoy Christ and all his riches. A life of obedience to Christ is a life that is full of the most joy possible, the highest riches that you can have in this life. The economy of the kingdom of the world says to make decisions based on what will get you the most money. But the economy of the kingdom of heaven says to make decisions based on what will get you the most of God. What will get you the most joy in Christ? In big life decisions that you may be making? Or am I going to honor Christ in this thought or the next? Contentment, then, is one of the most difficult things to get, but when you get it, you need nothing else. In Philippians 4, Paul, who is writing from prison, says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. Here's the secret that Paul has learned now from Philippians 4 of how to find contentment. Here's the secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is one of the most important verses in the entirety of Christian living. And not because this verse will help you ace the final next month or will help you score a goal in the championship game. This verse is not about accomplishment in all things, but this verse is about contentment in all things. How through Christ who strengthens you because of your knowledge and secure trust in his deep, 
deep love for you because you know that since he has done the hard part of living and dying for you, of course he will help you now to love him. Even through difficult circumstances. To be content in all things. He will strengthen you to do this. To live obediently, which then gets you more and more joy in himself. God is not begrudging in his desire to empower you to live in obedience. God's not holding back. He's not begrudging in his desire. He's not stingy with his desire to give of himself to you. But he's also not begrudging to keep giving grace and grace upon grace for us when we are not godly and we are not obedient because God is more committed to your joy than you are. If you want to know if God loves you, do not look to your circumstances. Do not look to your paycheck. Do not look to your house or your car. If you want to know if God loves you, look to the cross. Do not look to how much you make. Do not look to how much you own, but look to how much you own in the cross of Christ, and it is infinite. And so back to 1 Timothy verse 7, Paul gives the Job equivalent of when Job said, naked I came into the world and naked shall I return. In verse 7 he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. How silly and dumb and foolish and a waste of eternal time to make all of our lives about salaries and raises, about bigger houses and nicer cars and the bigger and better next vacation. After John D. Rockefeller's death, supposedly a reporter asked one of his aides how much of his wealth he left behind, meaning like how much did he leave it behind in the world uh, for others to take? How much of his estate is left? How much did he leave behind? And perhaps misunderstanding the question or perhaps just full of wisdom, the aide, the aide answered, well, all of it. <laughs> he left all of it behind. He, <laughs> what is, that's a dumb question. He didn't take any of it with him. He's dead. All of it is still here. So does this mean that we should just all quit our jobs? Does it mean that any pursuit of money or a paycheck is necessarily distracting or is inherently sinful? After all, we often hear that money is the root of all evil, but that's not quite what Paul says here, is it? There's a, that's an American proverb that gets passed along a lot. Money is the root of all evil. And now you know that that came from 1 Timothy 6, but that's not what Paul says. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And this is piggybacking right on top of what he says in verse 9. That those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich, those who love money, which can apply to those who are rich and it can apply to those who are poor. It can apply to the rich who want to be richer, and it can apply to the poor who just want to have more than they have. Both want to have more than they have. In both cases, these two kinds of people think that they are lacking in some way, that either God is holding out or there is something out there that will make me happy, that their lives are not full, but if I could just have an extra $100 a month or an extra 100000 this year, then I'll be happy. And this kind of love of money is an unhealthy craving, an unhealthy disease 
that has caused countless many into unintentionally and even suicidal destruction. Perhaps not literally, but this first infection, the origin of the disease, Paul says in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. I don't think he is saying that he, people are literally killing themselves, though some do. He is saying the love of money, they have literally impaled themselves with desire. And it is through this never-satisfied desire for more, never-satisfied desire for more and more and more that many folks have left their love and faith in Christ. They've impaled themselves on the altar of more money, of more stuff, more happiness that never, ever comes and that never, ever keeps its promise. These are wicked and false teachers who would lead God's people away into this kind of death And yet it doesn't take very much introspection, does it? For us to see glimmers of this kind of wickedness, this kind of disease in the reflection pools of our own souls. To see that we need the medicine of God's word to heal us, to heal this sickness for desire for more and more and more and more. To see that we need the fullness of the gospel to bring contentment to our restless hearts, to see that we need correction from God's word himself. I realize that the second half probably feels rushed and short-changed, so as much as this conversation is in a, in a topic is a conversation and topic that we would all like to avoid, isn't it? Let's come back here again next week, both to wrap up this letter entirely, but to also think about the nature of contentment even more. We as 21st century Americans perhaps need this text more than anyone in the history of the world. But as we come to the table tonight, we're going to introduce a new song. Listen to some of the lyrics that we are about to profess to be true as we approach the table tonight. The song is called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. The first verse goes, My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in what I own, but in the cross. Whether we have much or we have little, this is not a measure of our worth. How do you know your worth, Christian? How do you know your value? How do you know that God loves you, cares for you, and will provide for you at the cross? And then in one of the most succinctly poignant verses I've ever heard, Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Incredible. So we will sing together that I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. May it be true. Let's ask that it might be. Father, these words are almost too high for our own hearts. They're too lofty. They are often not true, and yet we want them to be true. Help us to rejoice even more in you, Jesus, our Redeemer. Help us to more and more hold you as our greatest treasure, the wellspring of our souls. 
God, we need your presence. We need your power that we might trust in you and you and no other, that our souls might be satisfied in Christ alone. We know that you can help us in this. We know that you want our restless hearts to find their rest in you. And so, Lord Jesus, help us. In faith, we cry out to you that all of this can be true, that we can do all things through you who strengthens us, that we can find contentment and joy no matter the circumstances of our life, and you who strengthen us. And we pray these things in faith in your strong and powerful name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.